Okay, so today we're back to uh, Ephesians and we're taking up uh, the story in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. So, back in the day, in the good old days, you remember those days, don't you? We had a thing called cinema. (laughs) And I used to like to go to the movies. We'd get a chop top and we'd sit down and we'd watch somebody else's uh, perception of reality. We could normally tell how good a movie was by how long we'd sit there after the movie had finished. Mm. If it was a so-so movie, we were kind of up and out of there just as the credits uh, started to roll. If it was a good movie, we'd sit there for a while, we'd get our thoughts together, uh, maybe wipe a tear from our eye, uh, while we watch the credits roll. While watching the credits, I've noticed that there's some interesting jobs in movie making. We all know about the actors, the producers, the uh, screenwriters, etc., the director. But I've always been intrigued by the gopher. He's the guy that goes for stuff. If you're important and you're on set and you want a cup of coffee, he will go for it. If somebody needs a suit for the next scene, he will go and get it. He's a handy hop guy to have around, I believe. I wouldn't mind having a gopher. He'd make life uh, a lot easier, I think. Another interesting job uh, that you see there is a focus puller. The focus puller's job is always to keep the subject in proper focus, even as the subject moves around the set, whether it's a close-up, shot, whether it's a middle distance shot, or whether um, it's a great panoramic scene, he's got to keep the focus clear, precise, and at the right magnification. If the focus goes soft or fuzzy, it could turn a good movie into an absolute disaster. Some people believe that the focus puller has one of the most important jobs on the set. The focus puller is not the camera is the cameraman's assistant. The really crazy thing is he's not looking through the lens. He's setting the focus by estimating how much distance there is between the camera and the subject. And he's got to be able to estimate that distance down in centimetres. And he makes those adjustments on the camera while it's being operated by the cameraman. The cameraman is too busy uh, using the camera to track the action to keep and keep it in the centre of the screen to be worried about trying to pull the focus in. So it's an unbelievable job, really. The focus puller, you can work on the camera directly while the cameraman's using it, or you can operate it remotely, which is really good when the camera's up the top of a big long boom. Why am I talking about focus pulling? When we read the Bible, we actually enter into a very different perception of reality than what we experience today. We're living in a modern Western affluent society, and it's very different to how the Ephesians were living, as Paul wrote to them back some 2,000 years ago. Paul, as he writes about the Commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise, circumcision, the law of ordinances, is actually referring back anything up to the time of Abraham which was another 2,100 years BC. So it was 4,100 years ago, Abraham lived. And he lived a very different life to what the Ephesians were living. 
He certainly lives a massively different life to what we live today. The thing is, is that time between Paul and Abraham, that 2,100 years, is the history of the Jews as it's recorded in the Old Testament. And what we read there, and what Paul is telling us, is that the Jews got their focus wrong. They started looking at the wrong things, they looked at them in the wrong way. And because they were focused on the wrong things, seeing them the wrong way, when their uh, story untold, unfolded, it made no sense to them. The very things that they were looking for, such as the coming of the Messiah, it occurred and they missed it. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, the very thing that they were looking for. And they didn't understand that the promise that was made to Abraham, their forefather, that though he was the father of the Jews, it went well beyond them. It went to all the nations of the world. He wasn't just the father of their nation, he was the spiritual father of many nations, all who come to faith in Christ, the church. The focus puller is able to keep everything in proper focus because he knows the whole story. He knows where they come from, he knows where they're going to go to. And as we read the Bible, we need to put it into the context of the whole story. In our portion today, in verse 11, Paul starts off with, therefore. When you say, therefore, therefore, where does it come from? What does that therefore refer to? What is the focus of it? Well, it actually goes back to uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And this says, God, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Verses 22 and 23, they also add a bit of context. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our focus in all that we are looking at is the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church and all things being united under him to the church. That's God's purpose all down through all the ages. It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And this has always been God's focus from eternity past. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the mighty power of God in bringing each one of us individually to salvation. And we saw that there were many, many obstacles to it. The obstacles began with our general condition of us all being spiritually dead and in bondage to sin. And Paul reminds the Ephesians that that is what they were. But now they are Christians. And the only thing that could make that great change is the immeasurable power of God. God in Christ is the only one who can give new life to the dead and break the power of sin in people's lives. That, however, is not the full purpose of salvation. Salvation is not all about us as individuals. There's a second great work taking place at the same time, and it's the establishment of the church, the bride of Christ, the family of God. 
As there are many obstacles to each one of us being saved and becoming Christians, there are just as many obstacles to uniting each one of us as individuals together into the body of Christ, into the church, especially Jews and Gentiles. The problem is the privileged position that the Jews had and all the blessings that they received, which we Gentiles missed out on. To put it as simply as I can, I like simple. This is probably too simple. All mankind has God's law written into their consciences. All mankind knows what's right and what's wrong. At the fall, our consciences got scarred or seared to an extent, but they still existed. God, in giving his moral law, the Ten Commandments, to the Jews, gave them an advantage. They had his law in written form. They were never in doubt as to what God required of them. We Gentiles never had that. So let's begin to look at that. Our problem is Gentiles with the Jews and God's law. So back to chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. Now we know that everybody who was not a Jew is called a Gentile. The Jews were the people God chose to reveal himself to at the time of Abraham down to the coming of Jesus into the world. In verse 11, Paul is saying that they were Gentiles. In saying they were Gentiles, he's not primarily pointing out a difference of race between them. What Paul is emphasising here is the fact that as, as Gentiles, they were blind and ignorant about God, about who he was and what he'd done. The Jews knew who God was and what he'd done. They'd experienced him leading them, delivering them, blessing them, living with them, intimately interacting with them over that 2,100 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. Gentiles, Gentiles never had any knowledge or interaction with God like this. Notice that it says that you, once Gentiles, in the flesh. If you're a Gentile, obviously, you're a Gentile. Why is the flesh being emphasised here? What Paul is saying is that they were fleshly. They were given over to their flesh. They were carnal, lustful, seeking only to fulfil their own worldly desires of the flesh and of the mind. When you go against your consciousness, you sin against it, you harden it. The Gentiles, not having God's law written down, were left unchecked, and they openly pursued their lustful desires all the time, and they hardened their consciences. That conscious hardening took place all down through that period of time. This is how they, as Gentiles, once were. And Paul constantly emphasises the vast difference to what the Ephesians were compared to what they are now as Christians. It pays us to think about what we were and then compare it to what we are now. Sometimes, because of indwelling sin, we might feel like, well, there's not a great difference. We don't think that a great change has taken place or that any change that is happening is going dreadfully so. But it's not about what we feel and it's not about what we think. It's all about what the Bible tells us has happened to us positionally in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, 
It says that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You can't get a bigger translation. You can't get a bigger change in circumstances than that. There are no other changes in your life that even begin to compare. Out of the kingdom of darkness, death, dominion of sin, into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into light and life and freedom. Once you've made it into God's kingdom, there's no going back. We are now citizens of heaven. So we are to live like citizens of heaven. This letter is telling us how to do that. Okay, back to verse 11. We come to what looks like an aside. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Paul, believe it or not, was actually being a bit facetious here. He's having a go at the Jews. You are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, now the big book down, made in the flesh by hands. We need to address this, but we're not to lose our focus about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. This is one place where the Jews lost their focus, circumcision in the flesh by hands. Circumcision is an in-your-face example of how the Jews got their focus wrong right from the beginning. The Jews misunderstood their own scriptures and what they were saying about circumcision. They eventually thought it all came down to this physical mark in the flesh. The Jews used this physical mark of circumcision given to them by God to divide themselves off from the rest of mankind. This practice of circumcision for the Jews goes right back to the covenant God made with Abraham, 2,100 years BC. Read about it in Genesis 17, 1-14. God promises to make Abraham the father of many nations. He promises that Abraham's descendants would have the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and he would be God to them. Their part in keeping this covenant was that every male child had to be circumcised. And 600 years later, this was enshrined in the ceremonial law that was given by God to Moses. Why did God choose circumcision as a sign of a covenant? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't explicitly say. There's a lot of reasons out there, and you can go and look them up for yourself if you like. But Abraham had to do it to himself at 99 years of age. What a man. <laughs> he had to do it to all the males in his household. Circumcision is a big deal for the Jews. Maybe not for us, but to the Jews. Some 600 years later, about 1500 BC, when Moses was commissioned by God to confront Pharaoh about letting God's people go, Circumcision comes up again. As you know, Moses was very reluctant to go and confront Pharaoh, and he argued with God. Despite the fact that he had been brought up and educated in the courts of Egypt, he said he couldn't speak. He wasn't eloquent. And so God said, your brother Aaron will go with you and speak for you. Now, don't forget that Moses is credited with writing the first five books of the Bible. In Exodus 4, uh, 
24 and 26, it tells us that Moses and his family had gone one day's journey back towards Egypt, set out to confront Pharaoh. And that God came to Moses that first night and God tried to kill him. The only thing that saved Moses was the fact that Zipporah, his wife, took a fleet of night and circumcised their son and threw the foreskin down at Moses' feet. Then God relented and let Moses live. What is going on here? Again, we're not explicitly told. It could be that Moses didn't circumcise his son, as he should have, because his wife was not a Jew and she wasn't having what she considered a barbaric practice carried out on her baby. She wasn't pleased when she threw her son's foreskin down at Moses' feet. She said, you are a husband of blood. So he may have put off circumcision to please her rather than God. Or it could have been that Moses, arguing with God, showed that his heart was not right with God. One thing we do know, it was a powerful way for Moses to learn and he must take God seriously. 500 years later, 1000 BC, we see an incident in the life of David. In 1 Samuel 17, 20, the following verses, David as a young lad was sent to take food to his brothers who were camped in King Saul's army. The army was being terrorised by the giant Goliath. And David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the army of the living God? Yeah. We all know that David as a lad had an amazing imagination as he started writing shows. But the best book down for life you can come up with is this uncircumcised Philistine. Well, it is when you realise how important it was that circumcision marks you out as being in covenant relationship with the living God. Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine was obviously not a Jew, not in any relationship with God, and not a partaker of the promises of God. Circumcision is a big deal. If you were not circumcised, you were despised by the Jews. Over the telling of their history in the Old Testament, their focus changed from a heart attitude of obeying God and holding on to the covenant into one holding on to circumcision as a physical law imposed on them as a work in their flesh. That mark in the flesh was only ever meant to be a sign of what occurred in their heart. Heart work is the work of God. It's not the work of men. Only God can change your heart. We can see this if we jump back to Moses for a minute. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. Moses was about to hand over the leadership of the Jews to Joshua so he could take them into the promised land. And God renews all the covenants to them that he made previously with Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers, hundreds of years previously. God says, I will bring you into the land of your forefathers and you shall possess it. I will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what God does. He circumcises the heart. Circumcision is all about the heart, and it is God who circumcises your heart. You can't do it, and no other person 
No other man can do it. Man can circumcise his flesh, but it is only a sign of what God has done in the heart of his people. So let's roll forward 1,500 years to Paul. He's emphasising to the Ephesians that the Jews had become so fixated on the fact that circumcision was in the flesh by hands that it had become a big problem for them. How big a problem? Well, at the time that Paul was writing, the Greeks saw themselves as civilised before anybody else was a barbarian. The Romans saw themselves as civilised and they thought everybody else was a pagan. The Jews saw themselves as God's people and everybody else were dogs, not even human. It's next to impossible to overcome prejudices of different people groups if they're different race, different colour, different caste, different socio-economic group. How do you overcome prejudices of people who don't even think you're human? You are an animal to them. How can they ever be united to other people? God's people, the Jews, have become some of the most prejudiced people in the world on religious grounds. The Jews back in the Old Testament used circumcision to erect an insurmountable wall between themselves and the rest of mankind. For them, it was a work of the law. It was enshrined in the ceremonial law for something that distinguished and separated Jews from the rest of mankind and marked them out as God's people. When God instituted circumcision and the ceremonial law, they were symbols, signs of God as how to live spiritually before God and to relate to him and to worship him. A lot of the ceremonial law was about the sacrifices and how they were to be carried out to be pleasing to God. They, however, lost all sense of the spiritual guidance and it became all about the physical, what they did. Isaiah the prophet later says in uh, chapter 11, he says that God says, I hate your sacrifices, I find no pleasure in them. Okay, let's move on to verse 12. Verse 12 tells us that over 2,100 years, 2,100 years from Abraham to Paul, while this problem of circumcision and ceremonial law was evolving in the hearts and the minds of the Jews, there actually was some things that were true about the Gentiles, which also put them at great disadvantage to the Jews. The first thing that Paul says is that they were without Christ. This is the most shocking thing that can be said about a Gentile at any time, about anybody at any time. This is the thing that really separates all mankind from the Jews, not circumcision, but the fact that they were without Christ. But hang on a minute. We're talking about the time of Abraham, which was 2,000 years before Christ came. Weren't the Jews back then also without Christ? No. Careful reading of the Old Testament tells us that they always had the promise of his coming. Jesus is written in every page of the Old Testament. Augustine said that the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. All the covenant promises in the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfilment in their Messiah, for whom they were waiting with great expectation. Their old focus on circumcision and on the law, their misinterpretation of their own scriptures, 
but they didn't know Christ when he came. We know, if we go back to the introduction to Ephesians, and you read uh, verse 1, 3, that we were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What are those blessings? Being chosen in him before the foundation of the world, being predestined to adoption, redemption, acceptance by God, and holiness. Or that has always been, from the beginning, reserved for us to adopt, just like it was reserved for the Jews. The difference is the Jews knew about it, and us Gentiles, we didn't. These promises of Christ for the Gentiles were included in the covenant to the Jews, but they were not given or taught to the Gentiles until Christ the Messiah came to his own people and was rejected by them. It was then that Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel to all the nations. The Gentiles were then being included as the people of God. And these promises in God's covenant with the Jews that included us Gentiles were then explained to us. This was always the intention and the purpose of God from the beginning of time. This is the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. Paul was raised up as the apostle to the Gentiles to make this mystery known, to reveal these hidden truths to us. So that's the first disadvantage. What are some of the other ones? The Gentiles were called aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. Now the forefathers of Israel are Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had his name changed by two Israel by God. He had 12 sons and we know the story. They all went off to Egypt in a severe famine. Those families grew and grew and over 400 years they become slaves of the Egyptians. And these are the people that Moses is sent to lead out of Egypt. God said, let my people go. And about that time, they numbered in excess of 600,000 people. Those 12 tribes make up the commonwealth of Israel. They were God's people, one nation, to whom all the promises of the covenants were given. Just as the Gentiles didn't know that Christ would come into the world, they also didn't know about the promises or the blessings that God had covenanted to his people. They were excluded from those promises. How can you know God's promises if you don't know him, if you're not living in relationship with him? You can't know them, and they didn't know them. Not knowing those promises, not knowing them, knowing God in this world, put them in a hopeless position. They had no hope without God in the world. What a futile, empty life you live if you have no hope and are without God in the world. People know that they're missing out when God is not in their life. There's a great emptiness in their life, so they try to fill it. And they try to fill it with things and experiences. It used to be that men would make their own gods out of wood or stone and worship them. What is a lump of wood or stone going to do for you? Nothing. That is what the Gentiles were doing in the Old Testament times. And in many places in the world today, people still worship images of their own hands. Now we might think that modern man is, especially the Western man, is too sophisticated to do that. But he creates his own God. It's often in his own image 
with his pursuit of money, fame, honour, power. It's all about him. Modern man is his own God. Ultimately, non-Christians put their faith in themselves, in their own thinking. They trust their own thoughts and conclusions that they come to rather than believing what God says. And they repeat, they keep repeating Adam and Eve's folly over and over again. The Gentiles were without the knowledge of God in Christ. They lacked the grace of God and the fear of God in their lives. The image of God in which they were made was defaced and defiled within them. And they lived in that terrible life that's described in one Romans 1, verse 20 and following. Though God's invisible attributes are seen in creation, they do not glorify him or are thankful to him. And as a result, they become futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts become darkened. Facing to be wise, they become fools, worshipping the creature rather than the creator. And so God turns them over to the unclean lusts of their hearts and their vile passions. Debased minds to dishonour themselves in unrighteousness with those things that are not fitting. This is the type of life that people live all around us. People who appear to be upstanding citizens live totally vainglorious lives. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's what Solomon said. Who set out to have everything that the world could give in possessions, power, honour, fame, every experience. The conclusion he came to is everything under the sun is vanity. That is what it's like to be having no hope without God in the world. Who is your God? Who do you worship? Who do you follow? Who do you see? What is it? What is your God? So that's the sad, sad state this world is in. So what is the remedy? Verse 13 says, But now, we always say, Glorious buts, beautiful buts. <laughs> now in Christ, you her who were once far off have been walking. Jesus is the one who brings us near to God, only Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. No one. It's by Christ alone. He is the only one who could deal with our sin, meet all of God's righteous requirements, and they pay the penalty for it on our behalf. Notice that the last part of verse 13 says, By his love, we are here. Without the shedding of love, there is no remission of sin. We recognise that. That's why when we're all together, we celebrate Lord's Supper every week, reminding ourselves that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. By his blood. Do you know that blood speaks? In Genesis chapter 4, God said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood, Abel, cries out to me from the ground. As we know, both Cain and Abel made offerings under God. God respected Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his. Cain was angry, and so out in the field, Cain killed Abel. What do you think Abel's blood was crying out for? Judgment? Vengeance? Retribution? Cursing? 
All those things came upon Cain. He was cursed by God from that day on. Cursed from the earth. It would no longer yield for him. A fugitive and vagabond he would be. Now that might not seem to be a great judgment to us, but Cain saw the really heavy weight of it. Cain said to God, It is more than I can bear. I shall be hidden from your face. Without hope, without God in this world. This is the greatest tragedy that can occur to any person, any man or woman. However, Hebrews 12, 24 says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What better things do you think that Jesus' blood speaks than Abel's? Jesus' blood cries out, I have died so that you can live. I bore your punishment so that you can be pardoned and set free. I have brought you peace with God. I have opened up the way into God's presence for you. I have satisfied the law for you. You are no longer under condemnation. You have nothing to answer for. Hebrews 9 says that the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Christ's blood cleanses our conscience and enables us to serve God. 1 John 1 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, and his blood cleanses us from all sin. Sin in our life cannot keep us from God's presence. Do we hear Christ's blood speaking to us, telling us what he has done for us? We need to stand before the cross of Christ, seeing him dying, bloodied there in our place, his head streaming from that mocking crown of thorns, his black back torn to shreds as he was scourged, those nail holes in his hands and his feet, the spear wound in his side from which blood and water flowed. Do you hear Jesus' blood saying, I have been poured out for you? Until we do, we are without Christ, without hope, without God. Okay, we're going to move pretty quickly now. We're going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16. There's one Satan. We mentioned the deadly toxic animosity that had been built up between Jew and Gentile because of the Jews' attitude to circumcision and to the ceremonial law, the law of ordinances, and it had become a real wall between us that no man could be moved. The law was a problem for both Jew and Gentile and God. It was causing enmity between us all, not only between mankind and God, but between mankind and mankind. In verse 14, we see it's called the middle wall of separation. We go back to the time of Moses when the tabernacle was built out in the desert, and to the time of Solomon when he built the temple. There was always provision made for Gentiles that had attached themselves to the Jews to come and worship God. When he came to the temple of tabernacle, he came into a large court. That first court was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could come into that court and they could worship God. That's the part of the temple that Jesus came into and drove out the Jewish money changers from. You then went through the Gentile court into a second court, and this is where only Jews could go to worship God. If a Gentile came in here or if a Jew brought a Gentile in, they would be put to death. 
Beyond that was the sanctuary with the Holy of Holies, areas where only the priest and the high priest go. So, but there's a wall of partition between the Gentile court and the court of the Jews when they went to worship God. What it's saying here is that Jesus came and made peace between the Jew and the Gentile, removed all the barriers that men had erected between themselves. Only Jesus could do that as part of that great transaction that took place on the cross. And now all men could intermingle equally together and worship God. He spiritually took down that wall between the Gentile court and the court of the Jews so that they all could worship God together as one. Jesus brings peace between us and God, but he also brings peace between us and our fellow men. Verse 14, the beginning says, he is our peace. He himself is our peace. That word Messiah actually means peace. Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. Jesus brings peace, but we, for us to have peace, we must be in Christ because he is peace. Are we in Christ? Is Christ in you? Is this the reality of our lives? To have peace, both Jew and Gentile, must be in Christ. Then there will be peace between the Jew and the Gentile and between them both and God. That is the only way for this all-encompassing peace to come about and make us one. How does Jesus do this? Verse 15 says, He abolishes in his face the enemy. It is on the cross he does it by his death, the shedding of his blood. The enemy is described as the law of commandments contained in ordinances which Jesus abolishes. What's this? The law contained in ordinances causes hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, brings division. What the Pharisees did is they took God's moral law and ceremonial law and to stop themselves from breaking it, they surrounded it with their own man-made laws. They made over 600 additions to God's law. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 to 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, Isaiah said. This people honours me with their lips, but with their, their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They elevated their laws up to the height of God's laws. Once again, like circumcision, this was all work of the flesh. It was not a work of the heart. So Jesus did away with all the man-made traditions. He stripped it back to God's moral law. God's ceremonial law in regards to sacrifices and to access to God became redundant because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and was the only way that we can come to God. With all these traditions stripped back and the ceremonial law dispensed with, it was hard for a Jew brought up following these traditions. It was very hard for them not to want to practice them and want the Gentiles practice them too. But man's law was done away with, the ceremonial law, circumcision, all became redundant. We can think that these good gifts from God to his people, and that's what they were, must have been a total failure. But they actually achieved what God purposed them to do, and that was to show how helpless and hopeless and incapable 
man is to be able to do anything to help himself. He needs a saviour. And that saviour only God is God. We are totally reliant on God to save us. God's law, his moral law, however, it stands. It stands for all times. But God's law, the Ten Commandments, is a problem for all mankind. To honour God and Jesus, we seek to live because it's lost of the It's a problem for all mankind. But God deals with his righteous holy law by having Jesus fulfil it on our behalf for all those who come to faith in him. Jesus perfectly obeyed it for us and he paid the full price of our failure to obey it. So now God's law cannot condemn us. The fact that we can't love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and our neighbour as ourselves is no longer held against us. Jesus' account is held up for us. To honour God in Jesus, we seek to live as Jesus did, and to obey his law with all of our being. But we're not condemned when we fail. The law is not there for us to seek to justify ourselves by. We don't do things to justify ourselves or to become a Christian. We do things because we have been justified. We do things because we are a Christian. The law made by Jewish men, the law made by Jewish men, brings division and hostility. Romans, Romans, the book of Romans, tells us that God's law is righteous and holy. And as Jesus said, God's law is all about love. Love of God, love of our fellow man. The Apostle John teaches us that as we experience the love of God, so we shall love our fellow man. Christians seek families to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we do this by submitting to Him, by obeying Him. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Okay, verse 15. We're getting there, folks. Jesus created us new. We are a new man. We're not a Gentile anymore. The Jew is not a Jew anymore. Those distinctions are gone. In Christ, we are now all Christians. There's only one man, a Christian. In Christ, there is now no distinction between Jew or Gentile. We're not even a Gentile Christian or a Jewish Christian. We're just all Christians. We're all just brothers and sisters in Christ, all children of God. There is nothing that can separate us from each other. Not race, not colour, not gender, not class, not social position, not wealth, nothing. Certainly not circumcision and certainly not the law. We're all equal in the eyes of God. We're all equal because we are all hopelessly dead in sin and all equally needed Jesus to die for us to give us new life and make us one with his people, part of the church. Jesus has done away with everything that should cause animosity between us. We've all been brought to the same level. He has made peace between us. Is this how we think? We're all equal in the sight of God? It is by Christ Jesus alone that both the Jew and Gentile has been reconciled to God. Neither Jew nor Gentile can approach God through the law. Jesus is the only way. Jesus has united us into one body, that one body is the church. And he did that through the cross. He 
as he was individually saving us, he was doing it to unite us together as his people, his bride, his church. It's now 2,000 years since Christ came, and we're seeing people from all over the world, from every tribe and nation, come into the church. It may not be that as Christians we've actually gone out into every country and nation and tribe as the gospel's commanded. But we do see that from all over the world, God is bringing people to us. So we must be faithful in preaching the gospel to everyone that God brings into our lives, whoever they are. One thing we haven't actually seen is that great numbers of Jews, Jews come to faith. Romans 11, 25, 31 says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, there are enemies for your sake, but concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these that have been disobedient, even so these now have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may obtain mercy. My friends, God is now powerful in working the Gentiles in until the full number ordained, chosen by God, predestined by him, comes in. And then we can expect to see a great work amongst the Jews. They too will be shown the great mercy that we have received, and a great work will be done among them. It will be a time of national revival for them. Their eyes will be opened, and they will finally see and recognise Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. It could even be happening now. While the whole world is shut down, online searches about God, the church, prayer, skyrocket. God is using social media to bring people to himself. Who would have thought it? Certainly not me. Pray that not only Gentiles, but Jews too, are logging on and searching for God. Certainty of Christ. Pray that preachers of righteousness will be held, heard all over the world. When the full amount of Jews comes in, Christ will return to take his bride, the church, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to glory to be with him. And everything will be wrapped up, finished, finalised. Judgment will fall on those who have despised and rejected Jesus. They'll be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing teeth. Time will end and a great banqueting feast will begin. And Christians will together from all over the world, from every age, be delighting themselves in God the Father and God the Son eternally. As we go through these crazy times, is that our focus? As we focus on what God is focused on, on what he has been doing from eternity. Are we focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and his church? Or are we like the Jews of old, focused on ourselves and what we're doing? Let's pray. Precious God, we just come before you and thank you, Lord, for your word. 
thank you, Lord, for how powerful it is. And we just pray, Lord, that you would apply your word in your heart and life. Help us, Lord, to see things as you are, God said them, that you are in control, you're doing everything according to your desire, and that you are accomplishing the ends that you set out to do. Lord, sometimes we just get overwhelmed by the circumstances of the life in which we live, and we don't see this. But help us, Lord, keep to looking to you, living by faith, and just trusting you as you work out all these things. We thank you, Lord, that you were working on our behalf. You were perfecting us and making us fit for glory itself. Keep our eyes, Lord, fixed upon heaven above, that there is our eternal home, and that's to where, to where we are going. We pray, Lord, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ would come again. But we pray, Lord, that first this work on earth would be finished completely, that uh, all the Gentiles, Lord, would be brought in, and then a great work, Lord, would occur amongst the Jews. That all the number of the Jews too, Lord, would be brought in, and that we would be united. God's people, Lord, from the Old Testament, and us, Lord, from the age of the church. Help us, Lord, to know what it is to be united, all equal, before you are God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.